Brooklyn, New York. I'm Adam Teeter, and this is a Vine Pair podcast conversation we're calling The Next Round. We're bringing you these conversations between our regular podcast episodes in order to examine how we move forward as a drinks business following the COVID-19 crisis. Today, I'm talking with Greg Duty, President and CEO of Vineyard Brands. Before we get into it with Greg, first, a word from our sponsors. The winemakers of the Ribera del Duero and Rueda regions were locavore, artisanal, and sustainable long before those terms were trendy. These Spanish wines reflect an ancient tradition and a pure sense of place, yet have a timeless appeal that knows no borders. Join us for the Vine Pair Drinks Experience on Wednesday, June 24th to learn more about the crisp and refreshing Verdejo wines of Rueda at 3 p.m. Eastern and the rich and robust Tempranillo wines of Ribera del Duero at 4.30 p.m. More info can be found on the Vine Pair website. And now that we're done with that, Greg, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks, Adam. So, uh, you know, before we get into this, you know, sort of what's happening now, I, I'd love if you could take us back, you know, a few months uh, and tell us sort of what's happened in the business and also give us a little bit of an explanation for those that aren't aware of the Vineyard Brands portfolio, who Vineyard Brands is, some of the brands that you represent, just so we can get a fuller picture as we jump into the conversation. Sure. So Vineyard Brands was founded uh, right about 50 years ago by Bob Haas, um, whose family um, owned what's now Sherry Lehman, the wine store in New York. And so he got in the business of importing wine for his family store. And then when they decided to sell the store, he f- realized that he really liked wine importing. So he started Vineyard Brands um, in a barn in Vermont, in Chester, Vermont. And when Bob left Vineyard Brands to to start Tablets Creek Winery, which was a dream of his. And one of my favorite American wineries. I'm just gonna oh, say. For sure. It's it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. But so anyway, so yeah, his um his successor decided to move the company to uh, a bigger city. So uh but wanted the people in the office to come along with with him. So um they chose Birmingham because that's where his wife was from. So it's a smaller city, you know, it's only a million people in the metro area, and everyone moved with the company um down to Birmingham. So that's why we're here. But so our portfolio started in, it was really built around the Burgundy region, um, where we, if you trace Bob's, if you, if you trace our relationships back with some wineries from Bob and before him, but through the Sherry Lehman um, connection, we've been representing some of our wineries since just after Prohibition. So oh, that's amazing. Isn't it? So like Laurent Ponceau keeps reminding me that he was a, the first winery that Vineyard Brands ever dealt with. And it was on the 19... 19- 34 vintage that was brought over in 1936. That's crazy. Isn't it crazy? So, um, and then followed shortly after that were Gouge and Monjard Mounier. And so, yeah, so we have some really, really long standing relationships. And so then we um, branched out, Bob branched out into other areas. So went beyond France to Spain. So we started representing Marques de Castres sort of right at the beginning um, in the seventies when really their first vintage. And then, you know, we, we, uh, we're pretty European centric, but we do have a, a great Australian portfolio, great wineries from New Zealand and Australia and South America. So we're, we're pretty much in all of the major wine growing regions. So, Amazing. um, yeah, and we, we have a portfolio that's super diverse, which has been great during the COVID, um, crisis because we, you know, our largest brand is La Vie Ferme, which is the best-selling French wine in the United States. And, you know, that's, you know, going on a million cases now. And then our smallest one is Petrus, which we picked up a couple of years ago and we get, you know, 330 something bottles of. So right. we sort of run the range. We work with um, 
Yeah, some large. The only thing that's consistent is we only work with family-owned wineries because. Oh, very okay. That makes sense. Yeah, since we're so we're owned uh, through an employee stock ownership plan by our, the employees, so we sort of consider ourselves a family, and we just work better with family-owned wineries because they think like we do for the long term. You know, we're not we we're, we're under no pressure for you know quarterly earnings, and or we don't have a we don't have a family that owns us that, you know, needs to give money to the descendants or anything like that. So we're literally just doing it for ourselves. So we find that we fit better with the family owned wineries and their philosophies. Yeah, that makes That's really interesting. So I, I'm, I am curious. So are, in terms of uh, importer, do any of the brands, do you guys have a stake in any of the brands or are you just bringing them over? So for example, like the, the largest brand you mentioned, Le mm-hmm. from, is, is that something that you sort of also are, you know, an owner of, or is that a, a family in France that makes that wine and then you're bringing it over to the U S and you're selling it here? Yeah. It's the, that's the Peren family. And I'm just trying to think, I don't, we don't have an ownership in any of our, or the wineries at all that I can think of. Yeah. And so then do you do just the, so to explain for the reader, I mean, the listeners, are you doing like the, not only the bringing over, but the, the brand building here. So the marketing, the PR, everything that goes into selling it in the U S or how does that relationship work when you partner with the family owned winery? Uh, good question. So we have about 60 employees right now and about 40 of those are sales reps who are all throughout the country. Right. And so we're a little bit different than some of our peers with a portfolio like ours, because we have a, a pretty high end portfolio and we don't focus in just like say New York or you know the coast or whatever. We actually work in all fifty states. So our sales reps are spread out from you know we have people that live in you know Washington to Florida, Maine to California, and, and everywhere in between. So we we actively work every market. So we import into the U.S. and then we work with our distributor network all across the country to you know promote the wines, to sell the wines. So. The way we work, because we have a for, for the size of our company and the size of our portfolio, we're a little bit unique in the number of salespeople we have. So we have more salespeople than than most importers do, and we view our job as mostly to work with the distributors so that they can sell the wine, you know, so leverage them because there are a lot more people than we are. But we also sell the wine directly ourselves. So our salespeople are you know sort of on premise experts. And so they are responsible for not only selling the wine, but also helping the distributors sell the wine. But we also, yeah. So, but we also have a national accounts team, which from what I understand is a little bit unique among importers like us as well. So they work with both on and off premise um, to make placements directly with, you know, large chains of on and off premise accounts. Got it. So let's talk a lot about on premise because that's, you know, you bring it up and it's, it's something that obviously is been the focus of, um, you know, most of the un- unfortunate news when it comes to the impacts of COVID. I think a lot of brands have done really well off premise. I'd like to talk a little bit about both, but but focus a little bit more on on premise because of a lot of the the brands that you work with and bring in. Mm-hmm. What has been impacted by your business? How has your business been impacted since the on premise sort of shut down? And what do you what are you starting to see as sort of strategies to bring that those sales back? So right around the middle of March, when everything started locking down, obviously, I think people were panicking. So on-premise, literally, as far as we could tell, shut down overnight. You know, there just wasn't any sales. And then as people started to, you know, get more and more used to it and started doing takeaway and delivery and that, I think you saw a little bit of, of, so right at the beginning, people were just selling 
what they already had in stock, right? So they weren't really buying much. But we've seen, it's been remarkably strong watching it come back now. So some of the some of them are, you know, if they have an outdoor space, they're doing okay. If they have, um, you know, if they're able to, you know, if they have the resources to do the the changes to their business, you know, like separating the tables and putting up, you know, what, whatever the, the, the regulations are for operating a, a restaurant. Um, those have been good. But the other thing we've seen is the takeaway business, I think is something here to stay. And that's been really kind of a good business for people, you know? So a lot of places that haven't even tried to open up for in per, for in-house dining are doing a takeaway business and doing a pretty good takeaway business, you know, making as much money as they made before and with, without most of the staff there. Do you think, so I, I have a question specifically about this that we've been discussing a lot uh, internally on our Zoom editorial meetings. And that is, okay, yes, I get that. But at some point, don't you think, and I mean, I don't, I'm not asking you to completely speculate, especially on another tier, but do you think that there will be some pushback from wine retailers, uh, et cetera, who say like, look, this was fine for, for during COVID, but you know, at some point, allowing restaurants to sell wine to go is taking away from our business. And so therefore we, you know, we want to go back to the way things were. Cause I've heard a lot of people say like, we think this is here to stay, but the only thing that I can't, you know, connect with that is that I do think there's, there's ultimately going to be pushback from the people who potentially could see additional competition because it's here to stay. So before we just jump down and say, that's definitely going to happen. I'm curious as to what the thought process is in terms of us feeling like that is what's going to happen. I'm sure there's going to be pushback, right? Because, but, but I, I'm not sure it's a really, um, I'm, I'm not sure. It's, I'm not sure it's going to be well received, right? Because the restaurant industry right. has been one of the hardest hit period. So letting them do whatever they can do to stay in business or, or to get back in business, I think, I think to try to shut something down yeah. for them when, you know, the retail, ha- the retail side hasn't really been hit that hard independence more than say like grocery stores or that. But so for the most part, retail has been okay. So I think if they try to push back, I'm not sure it's going to really be all that successful. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me too. I just, <laughs> yeah, uh, we know the pushback is definitely going to come. I mean, oh, of course watching it, at least here in New York, it's been interesting to see, you know, on blocks where there maybe was one or two wine shops now or streets, maybe let's say in certain neighborhoods, you now have five other wine shops that are, you know, nice restaurants have converted to commissaries or general stores, whatever they're calling themselves. Um, and, you know, while there's, while their argument is they're selling different wines or wines that were more restaurant focused and maybe wines that were retail focused, it still is competition. 100%. So yeah, we, we've, we definitely have tried to, to watch that because we, we are here are very hopeful it's here to stay um, at Vine Pair. We think that it would, it's beneficial to restaurants and it's really good for consumers. Um, but I, I, I do think there will be some sort of tension when that happens. So, in terms of uh, your retail play, how much did you adjust your strategy when COVID hit? So obviously, as you said, you you represent one of the the largest the largest French uh, wine brand in the U.S., which I actually did not realize, which is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, that's very much I see that almost exclusively um, off premise. Um, was there a larger push that you made in order to really focus more on off-premise uh, wines or, or sort of what was your strategy and what were you telling your producers for whom a lot of their portfolio for you is on-premise and were probably freaking out? So yeah, they were, a lot of people were freaking out, but so we didn't, so our sales reps, except for a few work both on and off-premise. So we didn't really have to adjust what we were doing. I mean, other than our office 
people, you know, our office here, we had started remote work placing, which has actually been amazingly smooth. Um, our, we really didn't have to change the way we sold. It was more just people were looking at the very beginning, looking for, you know, the brands that they were familiar with and sort of the comfort brands that were available all over the place. So like Levier Ferme or Case de Caceres are names that have been around for 50 years that people know and love. So they were, you know, just finding those on their own. So it was just a matter of, you know, staying close to the retailers and helping them make sure that they could get the stock in and that they could restock their shelves. But, and, and then, so just like with, with, you know, when the tariffs all started back in October, people freaked out at the beginning, but sort of settled into a groove. We've actually seen a lot of our brands picking up on premise, oh, sorry, off premise, which is sort of, that's been a little bit shocking to me that it isn't just Levee Fair and Marques de Castres and those brands, but it's some other ones that have had surprisingly good results, like better results than normally in on-premise, I think it, sorry, in off-premise as people are, I think just maybe getting a little fatigue with the same old thing, you know, they're just looking to, Hey, let's try something new. And so I just, I got an email this morning from uh, one of our, our, our producer in Piemonte in Italy. And he said, you know, thank, you know, our, I, I can't believe our sales are up in the U S by 15%, you know, cause it's definitely an off-premise brand. I mean, sorry, on-premise brand, but, um, I was kind of, when I look back, I thought, you know, that is kind of shocking, isn't it? And it's just, it's just because I think people are just, you know, wanting to try different things. So it it hasn't been just a few brands like we, like it was at the beginning. I mean, th- again, people have sort of gotten into a groove and, you know, the, the shock of it all has, I think, sort of gone away and now people are just sort of getting on with things. That's interesting. So you mentioned, obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a Piedmont winery. So we've obviously seen the data uh, that Nielsen says, you know, that the, the fastest growing wine sales in the pandemic so far have been in the $20, $25 range. And then, tw- then 25 plus has been the second fastest growing. Mm-hmm. Um, can you share sort of in terms of that brand, just so for listeners can understand, like sort of what the price point of those wines were, what the wines are? Because I think that's been really interesting that that's been kind of different than other recessions, et cetera, we've experienced in this country is that often in recessions and things like that, people do turn to the value brands, but during COVID, at least so far, they haven't, which I think is maybe speaks to the next generation of wine consumer, you know, who who we know is already trading up, but I think is also hopefully, um, you know, providing some sort of positivity to wine, to wine makers, wine producers who are, are seeing that, you know, it may not crash as much as we thought it would. Right, exactly. So we have our by far our largest increase has been in off premise has been the value brands, but we are seeing it c- come back across the board. So the the Piemonte producer I was talking to is Massolino, and they're you know they have their price points are you know from uh, Dolcetto through Barbera and up to Barolo. So they're not all over the place, but they're definitely not on the value end of things, particularly the Barolo. But um, yeah, they're just, I think people are, A, I think people are drinking a lot and they're on premise. So I think that they're just, I'm sorry, off premise, but they're, um, I think they're wanting to just try a range of things, you know, and they're willing to experiment. So talk to me a little bit about um, being an employee owned company. So what does that really mean? And and what does that mean in terms of making the decisions you've had to make uh, for the business in the crisis? So, so like I said, so, you know, the, the tariffs, um, on French, um, Spanish and German wines were 
started last October. So we had to make adjustments based on that, which was really just, you know, tightening our belt, behaving, you know, being extra careful about, you know, the allocation of resources and all of that. So when we came in, when the, the coronavirus pandemic hit in mid-March, we sort of just continued doing what we were doing right mm-hmm. beforehand. And so we had already, you know, stopped traveling. We had already, you know, just made sure that we were extra smart with the way we spent our money. And we just sort of have carried on with that. And it's been relatively smooth. You know, I think the biggest change has been, you know, our salespeople love to be out selling wine and that just right. hasn't really been possible. So they haven't, you know, no one's receiving visitors, you know, meetings are hard to get, that kind of thing. So it's just, it's been very hard on them to just sort of, you know, cool their heels. Um, but, you know, they're doing a lot by, you know, we've used Microsoft Teams, which is great. And so th- we're, we're all able to stay in touch, but there's just not that personal interaction that right. that salespeople obviously love. Um, how have you, so in terms of tasting wine now, I, I know a lot of uh, other importers, distributors we've spoken with have tried to get creative in terms of how they still get wine to buyers. Is there anything you guys have done that you feel like is like, yeah, we figured this out. We've been putting, we've t- taken one bottle of wine and turned it into 20 mini bottles and sent it out for, for buyers. Like, or have you just said, screw it, you know, we're going to send a bottle to each person and hope they taste and, and bring it on. No, no, no. We put it, we've been putting, um, putting them in, um, one of our sales reps actually created a little Argon tent so that he could, before I think he really figured it out that that the um that the Coravan was the best way but so he just took bottles and then put them into little mini bottles and had those sent around so and then we would do you know virtual tastings with those or so those are just for more like consumers and stuff or or with you know distributor sales reps but um for the most part if we were sending people bottles we were still doing that so um so it's sort of just a mix whatever really works you know we just sort of you know, it's, it's such a weird time and different things work for different people. So we've just tried to be, tried to be as adaptive as possible. Cool. But, but it definitely has led to some weird things like these mini bottles. I've never seen so many mini bottles laying around, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. So have you, are there any other trends that you've seen um, in terms of your sales during the COVID crisis that you, you think will continue? So, you know, we, we've had other people, for example, like Stephanie Gallo from, uh, you know, obviously right. Gallo Family Wines said to us, that they've seen a, a lot more consumption at home through their data, and they they, they predict that that's going to continue post COVID, right? So I think that they'll see people drinking, you know, more than three nights a week wine at home with dinner. Um, but is, or is there maybe like a region or a style of wine? Like we saw rosé, for example, in just our own data set peak super early this year uh, yeah. with people buying way more. Like that, you think is going to be an indicator of what we could see in the next three to six months once you know a lot more places open up. I think rosé is going to continue to be strong um and that we've seen that as well and we've seen obviously at home consumption skyrocketing. Um the one I'm the one I'm waiting to see is so um champagne really sort of stopped for a while and yeah, I guess cuz people you know but I'm wondering as as things start to open up if that's not going to change. You know sort of like if you're going to have rosé on a terrace, you know, are you going to want now maybe is it a time to celebrate again? You know and not, and not that champagne is only for celebratory occasions but i think i'm wondering if that's going to be the next thing to pop back i mean so we've had this conversation as well and i'm I'm curious for your perspective here i mean one of our things that we've you know worried about is obviously is champagne if is champagne's brand so strong as the one thing you buy for celebrations that it really is 
it really can't rebound until you know the country and the world feel like celebrating again mm-hmm. and whether that doesn't mean until you know the november december holiday season if if we are if we're allowed to be close to family again right. especially those that are at risk is that something that you know they can't because you know you, I, I read a, a report this morning um you know the the head of charles heidzik saying we are going to need to rebrand our champagne and i was thinking well this is only a little blip, you know, <laughs> champagne, yeah. champagne's done well for what maybe, maybe don't rebrand uh, who, who you are and, and what champagne stands for. But I know that's been a large question is, is will consumers be able to get past that branding issue that they have, which is like the premium luxury beverage? I think they will. Right. Because I mean, it's almost a celebration every day that we're still alive and we're here True. and doing fine, you know? And um, so I, that I, that's just my personal opinion. I think it will come back because, you know, especially as things start to open up and we get a little bit more freedom, you know, especially if people are smart about it, you know, if, if, if they're dumb about these reopenings and do stupid things and then, you know, the second wave comes, that's going to be a disaster. But if people are smart about it, um, you know, hopefully we'll just, you know, it'll just continue to get better and better. Well, I think that's a perfect place to to end the, the conversation because I think there are a lot of reasons to celebrate every day. Well, I don't have any champagne uh, at my house now. I will have to go get some soon and 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 pop, and pop a cork in in celebration of the fact that we are still all here. Good for you, uh, Greg. Thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with me and with the the Vine Pair audience for the last few minutes. We really appreciate the perspective, and I wish you and the rest of Vineyard Brands all the best as the country continues to open and we come into a new normal. Oh, great! Thanks so much. Nice talking to you. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vine Pair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.